Ladies and gentlemen, our first gospel reading of the Advent season, and it's, it's, it's coming in hot. This is a barn burner. So are you ready? Uh, these are the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. Hold on to your seats. Here we go. Jesus says, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars, and on earth distress among nations confused by the roaring of the sea and the waves. People will faint from fear and foreboding of what is coming upon the world, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in from a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, stand up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable, as you should after something like that. Look at the fig tree, he says, and all the trees... As soon as they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you will know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all things have come, have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of this life. And that day does not catch you unexpectedly like a trap. It's a trap. It's a trap. (laughs) For it will come upon all who live on the face of the whole earth. Be alert at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. So let me break this down for you. Jesus is speaking these words in the springtime in Jerusalem, and it is during the feast of Passover. So what we know about this in ancient times, particularly in the first century, during Passover, all sorts of people come to Jerusalem. Jews from all over make their way to this great city to celebrate this feast, this annual feast, with friends and family and anyone who wishes to join in. And Jesus is holding what would be, in our language, like a multi-day residency in the temple courts. He's teaching. This was not uncommon. In fact, the temple staff loved it when little maverick theological upstarts would come and try and debate them and teach and yell and say all sorts of things about the Bible. They loved it. In fact, if we back up from this text, you can see this is exactly what Jesus is doing. And the people who work at the temple and the religious experts in that area, they're debating Jesus. This was common. They debate him on politics, whether they should pay taxes. They debate him about the afterlife. They quiz him with questions like, so if you marry this person and they die, and then you marry this person and then they die, and you all go to heaven. Uh, who are you married to in heaven? So these are the great debates they were having uh, around the Passover feast. Uh, there's debates about King David and uh, Jesus' own authority and all these things, and Luke records these, and this is what Jesus is doing, and he's teaching uh, in the temple courts, and he's uh, magnificent. People are listening. People are wondering uh, what he's talking about or captivated by what he's saying. And if we back up again, just in Luke chapter 21, what Jesus does is he makes this prediction uh, that the city of Jerusalem and the temple in particular is going to, to fall to Rome. 
In the year 70 AD, the temple gets destroyed again. It had been destroyed several times in its history. It will get destroyed again and effectively for the last time. It will never be rebuilt to its former glory. And Jesus makes statements about this coming travesty, this coming destruction on the city and on the temple. And the temple means everything to a Jew. This is the address of God. He lives there. And so when they worship there, when they visit there, when they just stand in the presence of the temple, it's so important. And it is important. But Jesus makes a prediction or a statement, a prophetic statement about its destruction, which will take place some three-ish decades from these very moments in which he's speaking. And then he transitions into sort of this weird apocalyptic style of teaching, which we just read. He's still sort of talking about Jerusalem. He's still talking about the temple, but he also starts to talk about the end of time in general. And the language that he uses is very textbook when it comes to these apocalyptic teachings. You, you can spot these all throughout the Bible and in extra apocalyptic teachings if you just want to find those in history. But they're always cosmic. There's always something wrong in the cosmos. There's stars falling. There's weird things happening in the sky. The earth is shaking. The waves are pounding. This is very textbook, part and parcel of apocalyptic teaching. And this is what Jesus is doing. And he's saying that these things are going to come upon the earth. And these are really the, the prophet's greatest hits, cosmic destruction. I like this word, uh, uncreation is happening. There's a sense of uncreation that's falling on the face of the earth. It's chaos. And so Jesus talks about this. And then he tells this weird parable about fig trees. <laughs> like, it's hard to know, like, did Luke just throw that in there for a breather? Or did Jesus pause and really tell this story at this time? It does make sense. It's a very simple parable. Jesus is simply saying, so by show of hands, can you guys tell when the seasons are changing by the way the leaves change on trees? And everybody goes, uh-huh. And Jesus says, basically, so it, it will be when all of these things are happening. They will not be unsurprising, or at least they shouldn't be. And he's talking about a world in which we all live where there is constant struggle and constant suffering and constant, again, uncreation that's happening. And Jesus is saying, in a very sort of like dark way, why are you surprised by that? Why are you surprised when you look around and think to yourself, what's wrong with this world? We've lived through quite a couple of years over the last two years, have we not? And all sorts of interesting things have happened in our world, not least uh, of which has been the pandemic. There's been the political side. There's been politics in general. There's been all of these things that have been uh, difficult for our society over the last couple of years. And Jesus steps into that and says, are you surprised? Are you surprised that people fail? Are you surprised that people do bad things? Are you surprised that there's destructive Systems? Are you surprised by that? Are you surprised when things begin to dismantle? He's not being um, defeatist. In fact, he'll lift this up in a moment. But he is saying to his people then and to us today, why are you surprised when these things happen? Do you have such a high view of humanity that you think things should be better? They should be. Don't mistake this. Jesus is not saying they shouldn't be better. He is. 
but he's just raising a good question, which is, are you seriously surprised about that? When your favorite person fails, you know, your favorite famous person blows it. Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised? Why are we surprised when systems and structures and uh, political structures and civic structures and educational structures, et cetera, et cetera, why are we surprised when they fail? This is what Jesus is asking. There's always a sense in the world of God trying to make things new, but the world continues to uncreate all, the, all around us. And so Jesus says with the fig tree, none of this should be surprising. And so for Christians, and the biblical view of this is the same, Christians come into society with a very low expectation of humanity. Not in the sense that all people are bad. That's not what they're saying. In fact, Christians come in and go, it's the grace of God that precisely makes this okay. That you have favor in God's eyes because of his grace. But we are not fooled in thinking that we have all got this together. And so Jesus is saying to us today, when we look around in the world, we should not be surprised when there is suffering, when there is struggle, and also in our own lives. This is why he says in verse 28, when you see these things happen, stand up and raise your heads. Now, he's not saying ignore it, press it down. But let's figure out how we can walk into these things and through these things with a different perspective. Raise your heads. And the perspective here is one of hope. Now, Jesus says in this teaching Society typically and humanity basically follows two alternate responses to hope when things are bad. The first is panic. He talks about this. Everybody will be panicking. There's panic. There's panic when things begin to shift underneath our feet. That's a, an alternate response that we have sometimes. The other one is this sense of what I call selective unconsciousness. This sort of, uh, he references a few things like, just drinking your way through Thanksgiving. <laughs> or anything. And for those of you who, are, who understand my, uh, who are brothers and sisters in my realm of anxiety and depression, you understand this. We just sleep, right? I'm just going to go take a nap for like a day. Don't bother me. Because we like to sort of respond that way. We'll just sleep through whatever's bothering us, whatever's bothering those around me. The alternate responses Jesus talks about are panic and unconsciousness, a selective unconsciousness to the things around us. But Jesus says, do your best to stand up, raise your heads, and see it for what it is, and move through it with hope. One of my favorite films is Back to the Future. Anybody a fan? Yep. I think we have a photo here of the... Do we have a photo? Yes. Okay. Now you know the movie I'm talking about. It's on TV probably 10 times a year. Uh, I have seen this movie so many times, and yet I still get nervous that he won't make it back to the future, which is stupid. The movie has not changed. 
and I'm watching. Are you familiar with the film? It gets really tense in the last few minutes of like things begin to break. They're, they can't like set it up right. There's a storm and, you know, Doc Brown is hanging from a clock tower. And like I'm nervous that maybe they've changed the film or maybe like it doesn't work out this time. Like, but that's the mark of a really good movie. Like I'm drawn in and I'm still nervous that they won't make it back to the future. But like, of course they do. I mean, that's the way the film goes. This is a really bad illustration. I know I can feel it in the room. This is a bad illustration. I'll, I'll make a note for next service. <laughs> There's no second service. Uh, so this is it. Uh, here's what I'm trying to say. Hope sees the future. This is what Jesus is asking us to do. Hope has a way of seeing the ending, and it knows the ending. Early Christians, wherever you fall on the event of the resurrection, doesn't matter. Early Christians understood the resurrection of Jesus to be a foretaste of the ending. The way that they saw this, and the ancient theologians interpreted this, is simply that the end of God's story backed up into the very middle of the story, and we got to see it. This is the way the early Christians saw it, is that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus was the ending to God's great story, and they were privileged to see it in their own time. And it gives them a sense of hope. Not because hope makes things better. It doesn't always. Not because hope fixes everything that's wrong with the world. It doesn't. But that's not the kind of hope that the Bible talks about. The kind of hope that the Bible talks about is a sense of knowing the ending to the story. And there's a way to get through the messes that we find ourselves in because of that. Hope has seen the ending. So today is the very first Sunday of the Advent season. And the framers of the lectionary teachings uh, saw fit to say this is the first text that the church encounters in the season of Advent. This is the passage. These are the words of Jesus uh, that we listen to and that we reflect on and wrestle with. Why? Well, Advent seems to work backwards. We know that Advent takes us to the Christmas story, the, the event of Christ's birth, but it gets there in a very interesting and backwards way. It takes us not from the first arrival of Jesus and his birth, but it has us reflect on his second arrival, his return. This is what Advent does. And it begins with these very uh, difficult texts that we wrestle with. Fleming Rutledge has said famously that Advent begins in the dark. This is the darkest time of the year. The sun is gone in just hours from now. And so we understand this just from the seasons. But it is also a season that begins in the dark from the texts that we read and wrestle with. That Advent doesn't avoid things like struggle and tension and difficulty. None of us are unfamiliar uh, with losses and sufferings. Um, going back to Thanksgiving, I mean, I got so many texts from many of you and others who don't attend this church basically asking me to pray for them because they were going home to a family situation that was so dysfunctional that they didn't want to go. 
Maybe you're familiar with that. Maybe you're not admitting that. But maybe you did that this week. Maybe you just powered through. Or maybe you prayed that nothing would happen. Or that nothing would get said. Or that something wouldn't come up. All of us understand that. All of us understand that we live in a world where even things like family relationships can be broken. We live in a world where we understand that the economy can break. We live in a world where we understand quite clearly that systems can fail us. We get that. And Advent, unlike the Macy's parade, says we don't go there yet. We start here with the reality of the world, that there is a constant uncreation happening simultaneously with God's trying to make all things new. Again, Fleming Rutledge says, Advent is designed to show that the meaning of Christmas is diminished to the vanishing point if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And so Advent calls the church to stare darkness into its face and to recognize it and to name it. And it helps us understand why Jesus came in the first place. Hope, by the way, is most at home in that setting. Hope has no purpose beyond suffering or outside of difficulty. Hope is a thing that we carry into those places precisely. And so we begin here as a church on the dark side of Advent, taking notice of all that is broken, of all who are suffering, because in those places we find the greatest meanings associated with Christ's coming in the person of Jesus. We get that. Earlier in the service, we lit the first candle on the Advent wreath. And the lighting of the candle tradition has many meanings, but one of them is the, the growing light through the season. Each week, the light grows. Into the darkness, the light begins to expand. But the light also puts darkness on notice that Christ has come. And as we say in the liturgy before communion, that Christ has died and Christ has risen and Christ will what? He will come again. And so Advent, as we begin, is not about the manger, not yet. It is about this. It is about the return of Jesus and the hope that we might carry with us into this world. And so I pray for you during this season. Uh, I pray that whatever it is that you are personally struggling with or suffering through, that you will find hope in this season. I pray for our church as we walk through these Sundays and listening to the scriptures and listening to God's voice about what it means to be a people, an Advent people, as we walk through a world that is not unfamiliar uh, with suffering and darkness, and we carry with us a hope. Amen.